The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I owe so much to the kindness of IMC, to the kindness of Gil, to the kindness of everybody that I can't begin to tell you. Um, and I'll sort of begin to tell you today because my topic is gratitude. Um, for those of you who know me, <laughs> when I have topics that sound kind of optimistic, uh, people know to expect the worst kind of horror stories. <laughs> so for those who don't, I've called it Gratitude Under Fire uh, to, help, to help put it a little bit in focus. And I want to start with something that Maha Gosananda used to do. Mahagosananda was a Cambodian monk who founded the Peace Walk in Cambodia and who was a great peace activist and the embodiment of metta. The field of metta around him was so powerful that everything around him became gentle and tame. I know that. Even I got gentle and tame when I was around him. Anyway... Maha used to do this with candy. He used to do this with cups. My favorite was cups. Truthfulness. Forbearance, non-reactivity. And gratitude are the three pillars that hold up the world. If any of them is weakened, the world collapses. Truthfulness, forbearance, and gratitude. I want to say a few things about what gratitude isn't. (laughs) Gratitude is not taking some kind of Pollyanna attitude toward the world and thinking everything is fine when it isn't. Gratitude is not a refusal to face difficulty or pain or harm. Okay? This is really important because a lot of times when we talk about gratitude, there's a kind of repudiation of the difficulties of the world that creeps in and that repudiation is toxic. Okay? Another thing that gratitude isn't is strategic. Um, Cambodia is a country where there's a lot of strategic gratitude around. Oh, if I thank her enough, maybe she'll give me some more. Okay, Um, gratitude my first real experience with gratitude was in 1980 I was living in a Zen seminary on the Hudson and I'd been working with fear and all of a sudden something broke and I went outside from my interview with my teacher and the world was transformed It was this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous summer day on the Hudson. 
But the luminosity, the sort of joyous, vibrant luminosity of the world filled me with such joy and gratitude. And I still, it still makes me completely happy to recall that. Until that point, I'd always been cynical about gratitude. And then in that moment, I understood that gratitude is something that comes from strength. And it really does allow the world to be filled with beauty. The Japanese have a form of therapy where you go into a room and you think about all of the wonderful things that have been done to you that you didn't have to earn. All the kindnesses. You know, all that stuff, starting from the nourishment you received in your mother's womb and continuing, the air that we breathe. And as you allow yourself to bring those things fully to mind, your heart opens, and what opens is the desire to give back. So that is a tremendously transformative and strengthening experience. When we look at what the world gives us, sometimes we get arrogant, Oh, I must be better than everybody else because look what I get. You know, sometimes we get guilty. Why wasn't I killed on that battlefield next to my friend? What gratitude allows us is this option that not only keeps us whole, but turns the energy of what we've been given towards the world in the form of compassion. So it's that particular power of gratitude that I want to focus on today. So in that sense, it is a kind of strategic gratitude. (laughs) But it's not a what am I going to get next strategic. It's a how can the energy of what I've been given be used fully to help what needs helping. All right? So that's kind of the cool thing about gratitude. Um, I want to give a little background to the work we do in Cambodia, and then I want to talk about what this year's been like. Um, And then you'll see why I'm calling this talk Gratitude Under Fire. Because we start, you know, it's easy, it's easy for me to start, especially sitting here in this beautiful sangha with so many people of such strong practice and such great kindness. I mean, it's just, I love being here. <laughs> that it's easy to want to move away from some of what's hard, Okay. Anyway, we started in 2000. 
So this is the end of our 11th year of work. And at that point, it was a very simple mission. We were trying to help people with AIDS, destitute people with AIDS, understand that they were not outside the Buddhist compassion. They felt that because they were poor, because they had this horrible disease, because they had no money for the monks, they felt, some of them were terrified, that their next lives would even be worse than the lives they had, because they felt the kind of... They felt that their bad karma was generating more bad karma, was generating more bad karma, and that there was no way out for them. So the idea was simply to be present in a way that helped them access the compassion that was already there. And this remains our central mission, okay? And it doesn't have to be when people are dying. Um, Over the next 10 years, the situation for AIDS in Cambodia improved vastly. We were always working in the areas where it wasn't improving, but around us, antiretrovirals came in, people got healthy, they didn't die, there was medicine to prevent children with, you know, mother-to-child transmission. There, there was a whole turnaround in the situation of AIDS in Cambodia. We were supposed to look like Africa. We were supposed to have 40% prevalency rates and no adults left by now. And we don't. We look like Thailand. Our prevalency rates officially are under 1%, although some of us don't quite believe that. Um, and we don't have half a million orphans. Yeah. So the turnaround was dramatic and was accomplished by the international aid agencies and by the big players, Doctors Without Borders, Palliatives Without Borders, Med- Doctors of the World, all of those organizations together. You know, they built the hospitals, they trained the doctors, they provided the medicine, they provided ongoing supervision. In 2002-2003, we did a lot of social work because at that point, people had expected to die before they got their their medicines. They had lost a spouse, they had lost children, they had been very close to death themselves, and turning back toward life was not easy. So we did a lot of getting people to resources, you know, because the organizations that were doing the general provision of care, you know, they did what they did, but they didn't find you someone to do something else. So we did a lot of interstitial work there. Um, over the years since 2005, we've started to do a lot more material aid. We started when 2,000 families were sent 22 kilometers outside of Phnom Penh, 2,000 destitute families, and a lot of them had AIDS, and we just went out there and started. The, the medicines were free, but they couldn't get to their doctors was the problem. So we went out and started providing transportation money. 
And that has snowballed. Right now we provide transportation money for about 225 to 250 people, some coming in from the provinces, some living at the resettlement sites. Um, in the last year, our prison program has expanded. Our prison program is a relief program. We don't do the wonderful work that goes on in this country with Dhamma teaching and meditation. What we do is much simpler. We, ca we take in noodles and canned milk and some candy and some monkey bomb and a little bit of money because you can get beriberi in Cambodian prisons. There's not enough food. And people with AIDS and all the digestive problems that come with AIDS um, can't eat what there is. So that small amount of food that we provide and the small amount of money we provide is often enough to just keep people safe. Yeah. Um, the Med Doctors Without Borders has set up a program in the major men's prison and in the major women and children's prison where they are caring for all the AIDS patients and testing for AIDS and testing for tuberculosis because tuberculosis is a huge epidemic and multi-drug resistant tuberculosis is on the rise. So that program still exists. In the meantime, our core work, <laughs> this is all the marginals. Our core work is to go and visit people. We do Reiki, we do healing touch, we do chanting. I had this idea, some of you have heard me say this dozens of times. When we started, I thought we would teach meditation to the patients. They're sick. They don't want to learn how to meditate. They just want to feel better. So, you know, they would cooperate for a few days and then they'd be busy or tired and bored and, you know. So what we found with the Reiki is that it helps people enter a meditative state without their having to put forth the effort. So that the patients love it. We do it. Six of, five of my staff are Reiki masters. They're the first Cambodian Reiki masters in Cambodia. I don't know if there's some Cambodian Reiki masters in the States or France. Um, we do a lot of that. We do chanting. We have two mortuaries that we take care of in two different hospitals. In the one, we put the Buddha, and we clean, and every major precept day, we clean and we chant, and we purify it so that it's a peaceful and warm and loving atmosphere where people are taken. In the other, the mortuary itself hadn't... It was horrible. Nothing had been done to repair it or take care of it for maybe 50 years. It was used as an outhouse by people. It was... Thanks to a Singaporean Buddhist organization, we were able to renovate it completely. And we usually chant there about once a week. We do that at odd times when we're down at the hospital and there's time. Um, we do services for the dying, we do services for the dead. I'm going to talk a little bit 
in a sentence, in a bit about some of what my staff do. I got to do the work myself for about five years, okay? And then my staff started to get really, really good, and it got bigger, and I got pushed into administration. <laughs> and after some years of not being happy with that, I realized that really it is a very, very, very fine thing. I get some contact with patients, usually complicated cases, but their level of work, because they are Cambodian, because they, we, we know them before we hire them, we steal them from places where we see them doing caregiving and things. Um, their level of work at this point is much higher than mine. And it should be. So when I'm not being resentful about that, I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm not being jealous. <laughs> okay, this year. Uh, this year, the government of Cambodia has told all of these major organizations that have built the programs that they came in, they built the programs, they trained the people, they renovated the hospitals, they provided the medicine. Now it's time for the Cambodian government to take over. We can do it now. Thank you very much. Um, that sounds really good. The problem is that the government has no intention of doing the work. There are millions of dollars, and the control of that funding has been in the hands of the major non-governmental organizations. And now the control of that money has shifted to the Cambodian government. And in practical terms, the situation has deteriorated faster than we could ever have believed to be possible. And this has been very, very painful. Um, the doctors, the, the organizations were supplementing salaries in the hospitals. I don't know what the doctors used to make at the National AIDS Hospital. The cleaner made $300 a month. The social workers made 600 So I imagine the doctors made about 1000 Now they've got their $70 salary from the government and you never see them. Okay. The moment that Doctors Without Borders left, the doctors disappeared. Okay. Um, Medicines, equipment, reach the hospital, the hospital sells it to the pharmacy, the pharmacy sells it to the patient. Nothing is free anymore. Um, the other conditions that people have along with AIDS are no longer being treated. They set up an elaborate scheme where poor people got a card that said they were entitled to free medical treatment, and there was a fund that was supposed to be established, and that fund would repay the hospital for the cost of people's treatment. There's no money in the fund. Um, for three months this year, it was impossible to do AIDS testing because they had forgotten to order 
the supplies. Now there are two places where patients who are newly diagnosed can begin to receive medicines. Um, And one of them is closing off to new patients also. There are, in the prison, we have about 80 people with AIDS, and those diagnosed in the last two months have not been able to get access to medicines. Um, This is really hard. Okay? It's all understandable, and it is terribly, terribly hard. And it's very hard on my staff because seven out of my ten staff have AIDS. All of them have been close to death. And for them to recover and then to watch this deterioration is terribly traumatic. I want to tell you a couple of stories. And I'll end with a happy one, okay? But there's stories about what I've seen my staff doing in the face of all this. Um, We had a patient from the jail who had tuberculosis and wasn't getting better at all. And at a certain point when he got really, really sick, he missed his family. And so two of us went out to find his family to see if they could come and see him. And the story we got from the neighbor, his father had been beaten up for going into a house about six years ago. Um, He'd been beaten up as a thief. And they took the father across the bridge to a clinic, and the clinic said, we want $600 and the family took him home to die. And none of his five sons came to see him when he was dying, and he cursed them. He said he wanted all of them to die painfully and soon. Um, Two years later, the mother who was, there's a Cambodian word, slot, which means so much more than polite. It's polite, it's gentle, it's warm, it's loving. Anyway, his mother was described as float. She died from untreated cancer. Three of his brothers had already died. And the fourth brother is a very big gangster in one of the neighborhoods. (laughs) So we came back and we weren't going to tell him this. We just said we couldn't find the family, that they seemed to have moved. All right. Anyway, he was moved to the multidrug-resistant tuberculosis wing, and that was at least not the prison room. So he had, and we got him care. And we happened to have a volunteer with us who spoke Vietnamese, because his family was originally Vietnamese. And as he lost his language... You know, she would sing him lullabies in Vietnamese and hold his hand and ease his dying. And it was very, very beautiful. And there's a tremendous... The Khmer's don't like the Vietnamese, okay? 
but my staff at this point wants to get a Vietnamese speaker on staff so that we can do more of that. Another story. Um, Tumni got diagnosed very, very, very late. And she was living rough. And we took her to one of the organizations that has a... It's a drop-in center that's open 24 hours for drug users. And she had been a drug user, so she was eligible. But she didn't like it, so she didn't stay there. And she was really, really sick, and she was really, really skinny, and she was really, really dirty, and she was still selling herself on the riverside. And then she wound up in the hospital. And the story my staff told me was, she has a terrible pain in here. And the doctors say they cannot give her an operation for free because she doesn't get their med her medicines at this hospital. She gets her medicines at another hospital. So I was actually afraid of an ectopic pregnancy. So I went in to see, and I saw the records, and it wasn't. It was a, um, ovar an ovarian cyst. And what the doctors told me was that they weren't sure they were going to operate because they weren't sure she was strong enough for the operation. But I also believe the other story. Um, anyway, on Monday she was told she needed blood. And we have two people who give blood when they can. And one of them could. And so my staff bring in this person to give blood. And the doctor yells at my director. He said, why are you wasting blood on her? She's going to be dead in a couple of days. And my director said, whether she dies or not is not our business. You know, our business is that she gets the blood. Now, one of the ways, one of the things we do when we have someone give blood is they meet the people. I know you don't do that here, but it's really tremendously powerful to meet the person who is going to give you their blood so you can live. And it's tremendously powerful for the person who's giving it to meet the person that it's going to. So that happened, and she got the blood, and the next morning, my director stopped in just to check how she was doing, and she was walking around and fine and really peaceful in her heart. And by noon, she was dead. And my staff went to chant for her, and there were three bodies from the AIDS ward already there. And they did their chanting. They chanted for about 40 minutes. And then another body was brought in and they chanted again. Um, one of my staff has a very, had a very, very, very good friend. They had been living in the same group home sponsored by Mary Knoll when they were very sick and her friend got cancer on top of AIDS. And she was in the hospice, and soon our staff member was there. You know, we've, we've started doing this. If somebody's really having a hard time, we will get someone in there for several hours a day with them. 
Okay, so Sun was taking care of Kuntia, and Kuntia was going, was dying, you know. So I had to be down at the hospice one day, and I went in with another staff member to see her, because I hadn't seen her in a long time. And, you know, she was absolutely toothpick thin with a huge belly, and she could not get comfortable. And her diapers were leaking. That happens at the end, you know, the people get an uncontrolled, very liquid diarrhea, and, you know, it leaks. And we came in, and she said, the staff are angry at me because of the diarrhea. So we cleaned her up, and I was working with, doing some Reiki with her feet, and my other staff member were working with her head, and she couldn't get comfortable. She just couldn't find a comfortable position. And then Sun came in, and we left to meet with someone else. When we came out of the meeting, she was lying very, very peacefully, covered with a blanket. Sun was sitting up behind her head and giving her the precepts yet again with this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful voice. And the room was filled with peace. And Ramo went in there, my other staff member. He'd been working with her. And he told me later that they couldn't tell when she died. They couldn't tell when she stopped breathing. They only knew when she was gone. Because, you know, you stop breathing and then there's this interim before you're actually really gone. And they looked and she was gone and they didn't know. It was a seamless death. And I thought if I've done nothing else in 11 years but allow these people to develop to a point where they can have that kind of death, every bit of it has been worthwhile. So we are seeing more and will see more and more medically unnecessary death. Death from neglect, death from lack of resources, you know, death from structures that are no longer working. And my job, my job is to see how all of us can remain strong in the face of that. My job is, because I've seen it, you know, someone does something like Sun did with that death, and then six months later, they're totally exhausted and burned out and treating the patients. You know, we haven't had a lot of that in my organization, but I've seen it a lot. You know, people who have been heroic, and then there's nothing to sustain the heroism. Okay. Um, let me tell you the good story. And then I'll get back to gratitude, okay? We have a prisoner we've been seeing for maybe four or five years. And a couple of years ago, he was close to death. And we went and we saw his mommy. And she was old and bitter, and he had been really abusive, and she wanted nothing to do with him. So we saw her a couple of times, and eventually his sister came to see him. And he was lucky, and he recovered. Well, in July, his mommy, who's old, was very, very close to death. He thought she had died. 
um, and we went out to see her. And she had recovered some. And she was willing to see him because when he thought she was dying, he shaved his head out of respect. And she, she, she took that to heart very seriously. So we got her a comfortable enough ride and we bought tons and tons and tons of sweets because um, the prison guards steal what you give the prisoners. Not what we give as an organization, but what the family give. There are four different places where people steal it on the way back to the cell. So we got lots so that you know, the guards could have some and he would have some left over. <laughs> and I went by myself because the prison knows us. And what my director said is, if you go by yourself, you won't have to pay because it costs. So I went by myself with the grandmother, with a mother and a nephew. And we get there, and sure enough, they put us in the comfortable visiting space and they don't charge us. And he comes in and he takes off his shoes and he kneels down and he bows to her three times. And then he gets up and sits on the chair next to her. And they both just start crying their eyes out. You know, and she may live till he's, le- he, till he's out, or she may not. Yeah? But the breach has been healed. Okay. Gratitude. When it's possible to take, when it's possible to live in the understanding of how utterly privileged we are to be able to be in these situations with people in this way, then it all becomes much easier you know, terrible things are happening. Terrible things are happening in this country. You know, terrible things happened at the time of the Buddha. Terrible things are not new in the world. I mean, the Dhamma is given us because of the reality of terrible things. You know, and when we can see them clearly both the ones outside and the things inside ourselves, and see them with compassion, then it becomes possible to become free. We have tremendous gratitude to the patients as our teachers. They teach us our limitations all the time. They also teach us our strengths. You know, when I started this work, my unofficial supervisor, who was the head of Mary Knoll, used to say, if it's not life-affirming for you, it's not going to be life-affirming for the patients. Some of you remember those days. And I used to say to him, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not (laughs) life-affirming. And he said, yeah. Well, it took three or four years before there was a sea change. 
I have tremendous gratitude for that sea change. I have tremendous gratitude for the love that I receive, which is in trust for our work. Because what, what I see about gratitude, and I'm going to be taking it back to my own Dhamma teaching with my staff this year, is that it is a tremendous tool for allowing us to continue and to continue to strengthen and to benefit not only those with whom we are in contact who are suffering, but also ourselves. So that's the talk on gratitude. And it's under fire, I think, that we begin... I mean, that day in 1980 when I first saw the beauty of it was a day of miracles. But I think that being able to live in gratitude under fire is its own kind of miracle. Um... So that's what I want. I want to develop more strongly, and I want to be able to have my staff develop so that we really, really, really can do this work no matter what happens. Thank you. Okay. Now, it's 10.44. Does that give us one minute for questions? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> Questions? Yes. Thank you very much for your talk. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> very powerful. Um, and one of the things that I was wondering when you were talking, when you were talking about working with the prisoners, is. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any process of the kind of self-forgiveness for what they were in prison for, um, or was it more treatment for them? Wait. Just a physical treatment versus... Oh, you, do they get any spiritual support? The Christians are in there. <laughs> um, I wish we had the resources to try to bring Buddhist spiritual support. Um, the fact that we are Buddhists and helping them survive physically does help. By the way, I have our two-page project description for anybody who wants to, and that has our website on it. Our website has gorgeous pictures. There's this photographer who comes and takes wonderful pictures of us. Okay. Um, So, no, there isn't. There's a lot there is a lot missing from what Buddhism in Cambodia could be doing to help. And there are very good historical reasons for that, but it doesn't help practically, you know. And the monks are not going into the prisons. Yeah. 
Yes? I'm Howard. Hello. <laughs> a long time ago, I read a quote, and it was from, from one of the top lawyers on the West Coast here. Mm -hmm. And he said, the worst thing that one man can do to another is ingratitude. And at the time, it was kind of far from where I, where I was at, and I yeah. wasn't sure about that. But over the years, I now believe it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So, Beth, I'm wondering now that the Cambodian government has said that they will take care of medicine for the country, and they are not, um, how can that be addressed? I mean, you just have a staff of 10 doctors without borders have us left. No, Who is stepping in? We cannot address that. I'm sorry? We cannot address that. That's happening at a level which is just, you know, we cannot address that. What we can do is ameliorate what suffering we can in the face of it. But we're not, you know, we're not in a position to do that. I once asked someone about the suffering under the Khmer Rouge. And what he said to me is, you know, the people are like the grass. It rains or it doesn't rain. You know, a tree falls on top of it, an elephant tramples it. Nobody asks the grass. And, you know, here there are mechanisms which often fail successfully to address these problems like healthcare in the United States. But there is a belief that you ought to be able to change it. It's kind of easier where you don't have that belief because then you can just get on with doing what you can do. I mean, I know that sounds... From your face, I guess this is not <laughs> what you wanted to hear. <laughs> think in any way that you could address this. Yeah. I was wondering if there are other international organizations that there, are willing to step in. All of the international organizations were there as guests. The government has the power to say go. Yeah. You know. And you know sorry. Yeah. I mean, if something happened and it got better, I'd be very happy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess people are needing to leave. Yeah, okay. Thank you all very much.